If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. If you're new with us, we study right through the Bible. We try to go verse by verse so that we can hear God's words to us that are so practical, relevant, true, and life-changing. A couple quick things I want to mention before we begin. First of all, as you know, this Friday our team is leaving for Lebanon. So be in prayer for them. Pastor Austin was sharing with me that just this week there were bombings. You know, there's a civil war in Syria. There were bombings that killed over 600 people, many of them children. And so the Christians that are living in Syria right now not only have tremendous persecution from the Muslim world, but also they're in the middle of a civil war where bombs are raining around them day and night. And so what a blessing. 27 people from Syria have signed up and are going to come across the border into Lebanon and meet with our team for leadership training. We're also sending a team of women as well as a team of construction workers. So be in prayer for them. After the service in the lobby, you'll see people mingling around with these brochures. This is a actual a, a prayer sheets for how we can remember them and being prayer, be in prayer for them. Take one of these or just write on your refrigerator, put on a piece of paper just to remind you to pray for them daily. A couple other things. Next Sunday, we have a baptism scheduled. We have about 15 people signed up. Be in prayer for that. That's going to be a really cool time of seeing and hearing stories of God's grace. If for some reason you did not sign up for that and you really feel strongly that you would like to be baptized, if you'll come and talk to one of us, we'll see if that might be able to be worked out. But also, if you have a friend or a, a loved one that you've been sharing Christianity with, it should be a wonderful chance for them to come and listen to people tell their story of God's mercy and how Christ has forgiven them and changed their lives. Also, we have a meeting today for those in Vacation Bible School if you're going to be able to help out, there's a meeting right after this service. So if you'll be in prayer for that, we appreciate it. All right, this morning we are continuing our study of the book of Numbers. We've called it War and Worship. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that what happened to them in the Old Testament happened, for examples, for us. So there's a lot of similarities. People of God were redeemed by the blood of a lamb out of the bondage of Egypt. And we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ out of the bondage of sin. They went into a time of wandering in the wilderness, which for us is similar to living life in this world because this world is not our home. We're on a journey to the promised land, which is the kingdom of God. What we learn from them and their wandering is that the same temptations that we face or that they faced, we face, and that God had organized them to learn how to worship but also to fight spiritual warfare against the evil one. So this morning we're in chapter 11 and we're going to talk about this terrible sin of discontent, complaining, grumbling, and not being satisfied. Somebody sent me a picture this week. It was a pile of rich brown dirt with a little spare rib next to it. And it said, Adam and Eve's baby picture. I was like, hmm, okay, good. like that one. But the Bible says in the New Testament, since we brought nothing into this world... And we're not going to take anything out of this world. We should be content with just food and a roof and covering. Now, while on paper that sounds easy, it's very difficult because we have a disorder. If you look with me at the end of chapter 11, as we're going to go through this chapter, we find out that as a result of the complaining of the people, 
a number of them died. Verse 33 says, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibrot Hatavah because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Kibrot Hatavah means graves of greediness. Well, I, I, I ordered an autopsy. I, I asked if we could dig up one of the, the, the remains of one of those who died there. And I wanted us to do an autopsy to see what was it that caused this disorder. Because my concern, and I'm going to share with you the results of that autopsy at the end, but my concern is that if we don't put complaining in the grave as Christians, complaining is going to put us in the grave. And as I was thinking about this whole idea of complaining, you know, think back to the way God created us. It is an incredible privilege that we were created with the capacity to enjoy pleasure, right? That we're not just robotrons that take a, um, a, a bar of protein nourishment and we just go through life. That God created this rich variety, even before Adam and Eve fell in sin. He gave them every tree that was beautiful and tasty and delightful, and they had opportunities to mix it up and make fruit salad and, and enjoy the pleasures of marital sex, of communion with God, communion with one another, enjoying God's beautiful creation. That's cool. But the problem was, once Adam and Eve fell, we also had the capacity to experience pain. And once we know the difference and we experience pain and pleasure, it's like, okay, pain, eh, I don't like it. Pleasure, I want more of it. And so what happened when Adam and Eve sinned is that his constitution was deeply corrupted. And what we read in the Bible is that the eyes of mankind are never satisfied. And so what we find is that we all live with the enemy within us that's just not content with what we have. And we have to learn how, as the people of God, to deal with it. God forgives us of all of our sins as a free gift by his grace. But he doesn't just forgive us just as we are. He doesn't want to leave us this way as these coveting, discontent people, but that we learn how to deal with this sin and move through it by the gospel of God's grace. So I want you to think about this. At a starting point, I recognize that though I'm forgiven, I have the capacity to complain and not like my circumstances. So we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll work our way through this passage, seeing some of the, the things they went through, and then I'll come back and talk about our own lives today. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, now the people of the Lord became like those... Can you... Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I don't have to click them if you can keep it moving. Now the people of the Lord became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Now, adversity here is more broad, difficult circumstances. We don't know exactly what it was. He's going to hone in on one place they were complaining. But it's very interesting because bear in mind that they had just gotten the Ten Commandments a year before. So these are as fresh as, as a newborn baby. Thou shalt not covet, right? Be content with what you have. And already they are upset and they're complaining because of their circumstances. And look what it says. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now you go, wow, is God that petty? But I want you to think about this. Those of us who are parents, we sort of can relate to this. Parenting's a lot of work. That's why I never say to one of our stay-at-home moms, do you work outside the home or do you, 
Do you not work? Do you just stay at home with the children? Parenting's a lot of work, a lot of sacrifices. And when our children don't seem to appreciate some of the sacrifices that we make, we get angry. Like, are you kidding me? Right? Well, it makes sense to think that God, after all he's done for us by his grace, in his holiness, would be offended when we complain against him after all he's done for us. But for him to strike people with fire, we're like, wow, we're so shocked at that. May I suggest that we shouldn't be shocked when God strikes someone for complaining. What should shock us is how rarely he does. So obviously realizing, wow, we need some help. The Bible says the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. But now Moses hones in on a specific type of complaining. Verse 4 says, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Now when you read this word rabble, some translations say the mixed multitude, what we learn here, and you're going to see them pop up throughout the, the, the Torah, there was this group of people who joined the people of God, but they weren't saved. They're not believers, but they attached themselves to those who were true believers. They went along for the ride. And I want to remind you that that is always going to be true on planet Earth. There will be a whole lot of people who could care less about God, and there are some people who have experienced His grace, who have been fully and freely forgiven, and somewhere in between, there's going to be some people who want to get in on the action, but they're not the real deal. Jesus reminded of this in the parable of the seed of the wheat and tares when he said, someone sowed tares among the wheat. Tares are a plant that looks just like wheat, but it's poison. And so Jesus said, let them grow together. And what he was teaching us is, is that it's unfortunate that but there will be people in every assembly and congregation of professing followers of Christ. Some of them are not believers and some of them are there for very poor reasons. They're Satan's helpers. Peter warned his followers in, in the early church. He said, there are men among you who are going to lead you astray by their lusts. So be on guard lest being led astray by unprincipled men, you fall from your steadfastness. So be careful. Don't assume everybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian, particularly when they start trying to lead you into beliefs and behavior that is unchristian. But rather than the believers having an influence on the unbelievers, as is often the case, bad company corrupts good morals. And so they, they, they began to sow these seeds of discontentment, and pretty soon the believers joined in. It says, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Now, bear in mind that for the last year, their diet consisted of manna. Now, in and of itself, manna was not a bad food. And we're going to read, even Moses is going to describe a little bit about the taste of it. So it wasn't, it wasn't like cod liver oil, but it was kind of like, okay, I've, those of us or you who have been sick and had to eat some sort of a bland diet, you're like, okay, hospital food, I want some more. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we become discontent and greedy, God said, I gave you manna to test you, and let's just say they weren't getting a good grade. So what they did is they began to distort reality from their past, and we have a tremendous potential to do that. Look what they said. 
we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Number one, let us concede that this is still the case. The fish and the vegetables around the Nile are, are very tasty. Some of the tastiest melons and vegetables in the world. At the same time, think of this distortion. We used to eat it free. Free? All day long you were in bondage. You were crying out day and night to God because you were making bricks. You were being beaten. You were in bondage and you were oppressed. And they forgot all that. And it's crazy how sometimes we can look back and distort the way the past was. My wife and I had some dear friends in a former church in another state. And this dear friend of ours, her husband, was not a good man. He drank himself to death. And he was not a good father, and he was not a good husband. But after he died and she remarried someone else, who was a good man, who was a follower of Christ, but he was an indoorsman, so to speak. He didn't like to work outside in the yard. He was a good provider, and he could afford to pay someone else to do that. And she began to complain about her husband, that he didn't work outside like her first husband, that he wasn't an, an outdoor manly man. And my wife and I had to remind her, you are rewriting history. Your husband drank himself to death. Don't dream of him as this wonderful prince that, oh, the good old days. It's amazing how the Bible tells us the deceitfulness of sin can distort us. So, Moses says, hey, man is not so bad. Look at verse 7. It's like coriander seed. Its appearance is like that of a bdellium. And we're like, that doesn't help. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar, boil it in the pot, make cakes with it. And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. I mean, there's only so much you can do with it. The other day, I was, my wife and I were talking about what are every family, you know, if you're both, especially if you're both working, you have those go-to meals, all right? You got the crock pot and you, you sort of have your, well, when we were first married, the go-to was tuna noodle casserole, right? But there's only so many things you can do with tuna, right? But you try to mix it up. And so Moses is sort of giving an apologetic, like, come on, the man is not that bad. So the other thing to remember is this, that one of the curses of the, of, of the fall is God said, now you're going to have to sweat and labor, thorns and thistles, you're going to have to get your bread. They were getting it free. You didn't have to work, plant, sow weed. You just get up in the morning and you scoop up your breakfast. And Moses even throws in a little thing like, you know, it's not that bad. It was baked with oils. It wasn't dry. Another text tells it had a little honey taste. So you get your honeycomb and you stop whining. But didn't work out that way. Now, one of the strange things about sin in this earth, in this earth is that when people sin around us, we often sin in response to that. We're not responsible for how they act, but how we react. And we often sort of come up with excuses. And so what we find is while these people were discontent and complaining about one thing, it led Moses to respond with another form of discontent and complaining. Look at verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. Now, on the one hand, you might think, wow, praise God, Moses has a, a, a heart like God. He's displeased in the same way. But what we're going to find is Moses was displeased for other reasons because it wasn't convenient for him. And so now he begins to vex his complaint to the Lord. 
So Moses says to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? Wait, why? Why have I not found favor in your sight? Wait, what? Moses, of all the people on planet Earth, you might have found the most favor in God's sight of anybody at that time. In fact, we're going to read in the next chapter that God said to Moses, when they complained about him, he said, with every other prophet, I speak in a dream, but not Moses. He's my man. I speak face to face with him. Moses found extraordinary favor with God. He had an intimacy with God that none of us probably will ever even begin to experience. And yet again, the reality of our discontentment distorts our perceptions. What a privileged place he was in. And he's, why me? Verse 12, was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you did swear to their fathers? And I wonder if God answered him then. Obviously, the Holy Spirit didn't record it, but, but I wonder if God said, oh, I'm sorry, Moses, I didn't realize. Oh, you're the one that's been carrying this million people? Duh, here I thought I was. Deuteronomy chapter 1, God says, I carried you on the wings of an eagle through the wilderness. I bore you like a father bears his son. Moses, in his distorted perceptions, going, I'm tired of carrying all these folk. And if that weren't enough, then Moses says, and by the way, where am I going to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, give us meat to eat. And again, if, I don't know what God said, but I wonder if he said, oh, and remind me now, are you the one that's been giving them bread? Where did you get the bread? Did, did you go get it? Doesn't this sound like the disciples? When Jesus said, sit these 5,000 people down and feed them. And they're, and they're going, where are we going to get bread to feed them? In fact, don't you remember the words of Jesus? It was not Moses who gave you bread in the wilderness. It was my father. So here's Moses going, sheesh, now i got to come up with meat for him. I mean, it's enough that I'm coming up with bread. Or, wait, oh. And if that's not enough, then he begins to fall into unbelief. Where am I going to get enough meat for this? I alone am not able to carry all this, people. It's too heavy for me. Ready for this? Now Moses wants to die. Now Moses wants death by God. Death by cop, death by God. For real? Yeah, look what it says. He says, Lord, if you're going to deal this way, just kill me at once. Now, on the one hand, I understand where he's going with this. He says, if I have fine favor in your sight, don't let me see my wretchedness. And on the one hand, he's going, Lord, take me now because I, I'm starting to see stuff about myself. If it's just going to get uglier, just take me now. I want to stop and just pause and think about that. Why do people end their own lives? Because they're in pain. And what do we do when we're in pain? Well, normally we look for two options if we're Christians. We give God two options, so, so we're not forcing his hand. God, you have two options. Either remove me from the pain or remove the pain from me. It never dawns on us that God might be saying, how about door number three? 
I pour out upon you supernatural grace and you begin to understand that the thing you want the least in your life is the thing you need the most because it draws you to me and I'm going to supernaturally teach you that my grace is sufficient in your struggles and your weakness. And I, and I just feel that I have to say this. If any of you are considering ending your life, please don't do that. But don't feel like you're the only person on earth that has ever felt such enormous pain. Of course it makes sense. Sometimes when people will share with me, sometimes I just want to die and, and they're surprised that I'm not surprised because I say, I understand that. I can imagine with the pain that you're feeling why you would have those type of thoughts. And I shared something like this 10 years ago and I got an email that afternoon from someone who said, I was planning on taking my life. And Moses wasn't the first one to go here, right? Or the last one, rather. Elijah did the same thing. Take me now, Lord. But I am sure glad God's not like us. Because I have re reacted very poorly to my children's complaining. Matter of fact, I am so glad that God is so patient, so kind, so merciful. If you haven't learned this about God, God says, I'm not a man. I'm not like you. When David sinned deeply, God said, I'm going to give you two options. I'll, let, I'll do this or I'll let the people do that. And David got it right. He said, I'd rather fall in the hands of God than in the hands of man. God is so patient, so merciful, as Keith said, full of love, full of compassion. But we must never com confuse his patience with his absence. But rather than God chewing Moses out and saying, you talking to me after all I've done for you. Look how compassionate God says. Verse 16, look what he says. Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Now, I don't know why he picked 70. That does become the model for the New Testament. The Jewish people in Jesus' day had 70 rulers called the Sanhedrin. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, it says he sent out 70 men, two by two. But God says, here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. I'll come down and speak with you, verse 17, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and I will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you shall not bear it alone. Well, if you remember our study on the Holy Spirit, we learned that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not come and indwell every believer. He selectively came and indwelled certain individuals, sometimes temporarily. He would fall upon Samson. He would fall upon David. Sometimes he would leave them for disobedience. He fell upon Saul and he left him. But in the New Testament, we're taught that the Spirit of God has fallen upon each one of us and that we all have gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. And so God says, I'm going to help you, Moses. I'm going to pour out my spirit, and that's going to raise up people who will be adequate to lead and help you. And then he said, verse 18, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord. Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt, and therefore the Lord will give you meat to eat, and you shall eat. And sometimes people ask me, do you think God has a sense of humor? And I go, yeah, I think so. Some of these passages make me think that. I'll give you meat. You shall not eat one day, verse 19, not two days, 
Not five days, not 10 days, not 20 days. Keep going, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord. You see, at its heart, when we are discontent and complaining and unhappy, what we're ultimately saying is, I reject you, God. Why did we ever leave Egypt? Never forget a man coming to my home one day that I had led to Christ, and he says, Tom, I got to tell you something. Since I've become a Christian, my life has gotten a lot harder. And while on the one hand, I, I, I understand that. If you choose to follow Christ, it will get harder in some respects. That's why the Bible calls it a narrow way. And few are those who find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And so there are things that are harder because we're a Christian. We just sang from the psalm. Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Joel, you got it wrong. In this life, Christians are not going to have a good and prosperous and happy life all the time. The book of Acts says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless sinners? However, to say that it's harder fails to recognize that we have Jesus. So while on the one hand, our circumstances might be harder, our sufficient Savior makes it better, hands down. Because where does the world go when they lose a child? Where do they go when they're in pain? So yes, we have temptations, we have persecutions, we have difficulties, we have confusion. We struggle with sin. We struggle against Satan. We struggle against opposition, but we have Christ. And anytime we're tempted to look over our shoulder, may we be reminded of the words of Jesus. Remember Lot's wife? Somebody sent me a picture of a two salt and pepper shaker. It had a little man with a, with a, a cane and then a little old lady. And it said... Lot and his wife. Somebody said, which one's the salt? Do you need to ask that? Right? Remember Lot's wife. She didn't turn into a pillar of salt because she wanted to watch the fireworks when she licked back. She didn't want to leave the world. And that's a problem with a lot of Christians in America is they want to, be, they want to have some of that salvation stuff, but sinning is fun. And I want to kind of keep a foot and keep my options open. So, Moses said to the people, God, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, and you say I'll give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month? Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be gathered sufficient? Should all the fish in the sea be sufficient? And, and Moses does the same thing we do, and that is we doubt God's promises. I mean, it's not rocket science to be reminded that whatever God says, he not only can do, he will do. That settles it. And there's this theme in the Bible, the first time we see it is in Genesis 19, when God says, or 18, uh, Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And they start laughing, and God says, is anything impossible for me? The prophet Jeremiah looks up into heaven, and he says, ah, Lord God, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing's too difficult for you. The Virgin Mary's told that she's going to have a child and it'll be the Son of God. And she says, how's this possible? And God says, because with man it's impossible, but nothing's impossible with God. 
And I need to hear that, don't you? I need to be reminded my God is way bigger than I think. And he can do beyond all that I ask or think. And when I fail to trust him, I need to have a reality check and go, Tom, what are you doing? Jesus looks at his disciples. He goes, where's your faith? Haven't you seen what I've done? And so I have these promises of God. And what a wonderful thing to teach our children. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. And then we start complaining. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down and spoke to him. He took of the spirit who was upon him and he placed him upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Now, we tend to think of prophesying as they've made predictions like, um, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Primarily, prophesying is offering praise to God. These guys were just praising God. They were spirit-filled. Even Saul, one time when the spirit fell on him, he began to praise and bring forth um, words from the spirit to the glory of God. In the New Testament, we're told in Acts 14, or um, 1 Corinthians 14, that God gives people the gift of prophesying. And it's not primarily to go, ooh, tomorrow you're going to win the lottery. The Bible says, he that prophesies speaks to other Christians to edify them, to exhort them, and to console them. And so the Bible says, earnestly desire that in your church many people would prophesy, that God would pour out gifts of the Spirit on his people and raise up more gifted people so that our churches build up, cheered up, and stirred up. And it's a blessing to live in an age Moses He's glad that more people are prophesying. Paul said, I wish you all would prophesy that the church would grow. We're not in a competition. We're a cooperation. And it's a blessing when God gifts people to bless his people. Verse 26 says, But two men who had remained behind in the camp, the name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad, spirit rested on them. And they hadn't gone up to the tent and they prophesied in the camp. Now, we don't know why they didn't go up. But a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, intended for Moses. He ran to Moses. He said, Lord, stop them. And Moses goes, wait, are you, are you jealous for my sake? Why do you want to stop them? I wish God's, all of his people were prophets. He put his spirit upon them. Kind of reminds me of the disciples, right? They say, Jesus, we, we heard some guys casting out demons in your name. That's what we do. And Jesus goes, if they're not against me, they're for us, right? See, we, we sort of have this idea that if people don't practice their Christianity exactly like we do, then Lord, stop them. We need to, we need to broaden it up a little bit. Are they, are they within the fundamentals of the faith? Do they believe the orthodox doctrines of the gospel, even if they do it a little differently from us? And we should be rejoicing. The Apostle Paul modeled this in Philippians 1. He said, some people... People are preaching Christ and they're just doing it out of jealousy. He goes, but I don't care. I rejoice that Christ is preached. And we should pray that there would be many more Christians and churches that are bringing people to Christ and building them up. But finally, God gives them the quail. Now there went forth the wind from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea. It fell behind the camp about a day's journey, about two cubits deep. Now, I don't think there was two feet deep of, of birds. I think they were flying low. And the people spent all day and all night and all the next day gathering the quail, and they spread them out for themselves around the camp. And I read something in a commentary that really struck me. He said, do you realize what sacrifice these people went to because they had a carnal advantage to get rich a little bit, to have a little more abundance? 
They stayed up all night and all day. They probably went without sleep for 30-some hours just so they could stack up quail. And he stabbed me right in the heart, and he says, and you know, and that's, that's how we are as Christians. We'll go to untold sacrifices and work without sleep if it'll come to some financial benefit. But call us to pray, and uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't have time for that, right? Oh, gee, that's... That's a little too late. The kids need to get to bed. Or, and, and I get that. I'm not saying drag your kids all night long. But you feel the spirit of what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, guys, come pray with me. And they're conked out. And he goes, couldn't you pray with me? And it reminds us how weak and carnal we are. Because when there's something to our spiritual advantage, we rarely go, well, I'll stay up for that. But if it's to our physical advantage, man, I can get a break here. Then I'm going to stay up all night. Oh, that's too convicting. Let's, let's keep going. So, verse 33 says, While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was convinced, uh, or kindled against them, and the, and the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. Wow. So, as I said in the beginning, we need to put complaining and, and coveting and discontent in the grave before it puts us in the grave. So, let me just share with you. I, I got the autopsy back. What are some of the, the disorders that... that are part of a person who has become a complainer. And these are things that we as Christians see in ourselves. First of all, there was a disorder of the brain. They found that people who were complainers had a distorted frontal lobe that distorted reality in the past. That somehow it was better before I followed Christ. They also had a distortion of their tongue. There were some cancerous cells found. For example... They had twisted taste buds. They had determined that their taste for physical stuff was the most important thing in life. And what they had failed to realize is the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. They had failed to ever find any delight in their relationship with Christ and go, this lasts longer than a good meal at the Outback Steakhouse. Because you can work all day for earthly bread and it'll never satisfy you. But Jesus said, if you come to me, you'll find rest for your soul. And if you are experiencing a discontentment with your life, are you finding any satisfaction with Christ? Get that looked at. They also had a deprivation of the vitamin of praise. There was very little praise found on their tongue. Their tongues had lost the ability to go, it doesn't matter what's going on around me, God says, in everything give thanks. Rejoice in the Lord always. They had lost their capacity. Very few of these autopsies showed that these people had learned to sing praise to the Lord. There was also a cancerous distortion of their speech, realizing that our tongues have great potential to honor Christ. They also have great potential to do great destruction and complaining. The Bible says... Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only words that edify. Think how your words could save someone's life, could encourage your discouraged child, could turn back a wayward, could comfort a, a hurting soul, could lift up a broken person. But yet we're whining about the weather and whatnot. They noticed also that there were some problems with their ears, that the, their ears had had a concoction of worldly wisdom that had crept in. You see, the Bible tells us not to, to be preoccupied with the counsel of the ungodly. And you can always find somebody who's going to give you bad advice. 
And I think we see an example of that when they're listening to the complaining rabble around them, and pretty soon they're complaining. So remind yourself that bad company does, whether it's politics or anything else, that you start listening to the world, and before you know it, you have a disorder of the ears. Instead of being quick to hear, wisdom of God. They had problems with their feet. Their feet were in the wrong places with the wrong people. And they definitely had problems with their joints. There was no evidence that their knees had been flexing very much in prayer. But the most serious is they found a heart problem. Their heart was full of unbelief. We read in Psalm 78 that the real heart and soul of what happened to these people is they would not believe God. And unbelief begins with trust. I will trust you, O God, but it results in obedience. Anything less than trust that leads to obedience is, is a form of unbelief. And you say, Pastor, you're cutting a little close here. And I'm going, listen, I had to study this. I had to experience this sort of the Spirit going, this is you too, preacher. So this morning as we close, let's just, let's just think about this, this, this challenge from God. Let your way of life be, be free from coveting, Hebrews 13 says. Be content with what you have, because Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We have Jesus. I mean, we have Jesus. So let me ask just a couple questions. Number one, are you discontent with your spouse? If only my wife was like that. If only my husband was. Shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. Are you discontent with your circumstances? Why do I have to live in this setting? With these surroundings? With this job? With this income? or lack thereof. With these health problems, or how about this? Are you discontent with yourself? Why do I have to be like this? Why can't I be a little bit taller, a little bit slimmer, a little bit smarter, a little bit more energy, a little bit more witty, a little bit more popular, and on and on it goes. And suddenly God says, who made you? He that formed you and wove you together. God has convicted me deeply. Somebody once said, does it ever bother you that your hair is falling out? Somebody asked me that one time. No, I rip it out at night. I'm like, yeah, this is great. I love being bald. <laughs> but get over it, Tom. God looks at our hearts, and, 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 and as Americans, we're preoccupied with our appearance and our stuff, and God's going, I made you the way you are. And I might even have put some things in your life that you don't like intentionally because I want to draw you to my son. I love you too much to leave you with everything perfect. My spouse, my circumstances, myself. How about your siblings in Christ? Lord, why do I have to be in this church? Every once in a while, somebody will write me a note telling me how they found this wonderful new church where they're feeling all the love that they've been looking for. But I only get those notes within a few months. I don't hear from them a couple years later. We can run from our problems and find the perfect church, the perfect spouse. Perfect. It's not there. It's Christ. And then perhaps the, the greatest 
is when we're discontent, not with our circumstances, ourselves, but with the Savior himself. I just don't like the way you've dealt the cards to me, Jesus. That's not what I deserve. And may I remind you this morning that none of us would really want what we deserve. Let me close with a verse I found in Lamentations chapter 3. It says, Why should any living mortal or any man complain in view of his sins? Why should any living man complain in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways, ready for this, and let us return to the Lord. That's what it says. So I'll be first in line to say, Lord, you're getting me here. And I don't want to make light of this to go, oh, yeah, yeah, we all do that, right? No, we're called to repent, to turn from this sin. Americans who have so much are probably some of the greatest discontent complainers on the face of planet Earth. So may God grant us the capacity to mourn over our sin, but not to leave here like beaten down losers, but to rejoice that Jesus shed his blood for me. And he says, get up, I'll forgive you. Now learn to be satisfied with what you have. And if I choose not to take away your problems, learn to find grace to help in time of need. And then go out there and be an example to others as they look at you so that the Bible says in Philippians 2, do everything without complaining and grumbling so that we may shine as lights in the midst of a crooked generation holding forth the word of life. What a testimony when people see us and our circumstances not going, yeah, me too. It ain't right. It ain't fair. And I'm not even sure God is good. May the Lord Jesus meet us in his mercy and may we say, Lord, help me to be thankful. Forgive me for my discontentment. And this morning, I just want to surrender and find my satisfaction in you. Will you join me at the cross? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. You are so blessed. You are so worthy. You are so awesome and wonderful. Thank you so much for your mercy. Forgive me, Lord, for my discontentment. How quickly I can want what I do not have. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me thoroughly. Strengthen us as a church. Strengthen us as parents and family. Enable us to be humble enough to admit and to even apologize for our discontent. May we join together with the joy of the Holy Spirit this morning, praising God that what matters most is that we have re received from you eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. So prop us up and send us out this week to be different from the world. And cure us, Lord. We come to you as the great physician. Heal us from all these ailments, we pray. Lest our complaining puts us in the grave. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.